Well, good morning and welcome to worship. I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning. My name is Alex and I'm lead pastor here at Courtright. So we call this worship, what we're doing right now. We put that word on the church sign out on Devere Drive, but let's recognize it's a strange word for our, our culture. Even for those of us who are used to it, maybe you grew up in the church and you're, the word worship doesn't phase you at all, it's worth asking ourselves once in a while, what does it really mean? What are we doing right now? Well, if you've been around Courtright for a while, you know that when I stand up during the service, that means the music stops. The good times are over. My brother-in-law, Ken Michelle, told me that he recently heard a worship leader say, now we're going to move from our time of worship into a time of teaching. And because Ken teaches worship at Tyndale University and Seminary, he wasn't too impressed. Because he would be quick to point out, as I am now, that the whole service this morning is worship, not just the music, and that there is a logic to it. I was tempted to call this series The Structure of Worship, but that didn't seem to get anyone too excited. So it's good for us to ask questions about worship, especially when we haven't been in this room together for a very long time. Why does Sunday morning matter? Well, I think it matters because God shapes us through worship and there is an order to it. That's what Justin and I do every week. We plan the order of service. Now, worship theologians like my brother-in-law talk about a fourfold pattern to worship. Gathering, listening, responding, and sending. These four movements, you can think of them as providing a balanced diet to nourish a healthy Christian life. We've spent two Sundays laying a foundation for understanding worship with Israel in the ark and David dancing before the Lord to start, and then last Sunday with the Holy Spirit filling the church at Pentecost. For the rest of this series, for the next five weeks, we're going to cover some key elements in our worship service and in our whole lives as, as disciples of Jesus. First, under gathering, we're called to worship. So we focus on God, we praise him, and as we approach him with reverence, we confess our sins. And then under listening, we have the reading and teaching of Scripture. We listen to God's Word, and we listen to the teaching. And then under responding, we respond to God's Word with thankfulness. We pray prayers of thanksgiving, we take up an offering, we celebrate communion, which we sometimes call Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And finally, under sending, we are commissioned to love and to serve to go out with a final benediction or blessing. So we gather with the call to worship and the prayer of confession. We listen to God's word in the reading and in the sermon. We respond to God with thanksgiving and we're sent out with a benediction. That's the order of worship. And the Holy Spirit will nurture your growth in faith as you enter into that discipline, as you open yourself up to the Lord. Sometimes we sing a song, it's, it's quite an old worship song now, as contemporary music goes. It starts with the line, when the, when the music fades. It's a song by Matt Redman uh, that came out in 1999, over 20 years ago. And the chorus uh, is about coming back to the heart of worship. 
and it says it's all about you, Jesus. That is the center we need through all of our lives, through all of our worship. Worship is not about us. We're called to put God first. So let's do that now as we listen to the reading of his holy word. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good is it to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars in the sky and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor in nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, Jerusalem, praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses the people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breeze and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his law and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Last Sunday, after we'd watched the service as a family and after I'd checked in with our neighborhood group, I went out for a walk. I had to return a book to the library, so I headed downtown. I was walking along Paisley past GCVI when the sun came out. It was beautiful. And as I walked along, it seemed like every other tree was flowering, was laden with blossoms, bursting with pinks and whites and yellows and oranges. There's a house at the corner of Orange, of Oxford rather, and Glasgow that is having its limestone bricks redone by a stonemason. And the stones are coming out gorgeously. And then on the way back, I passed the house of some friends, and I saw them sitting in the backyard, and so I dropped by. They were digging beds for tomato plants. I hadn't seen these friends in a year, and so we enjoyed catching up. Two other neighbors came by, and pretty soon, all of us were talking a mile a minute. There was a lot of joy in those interactions. It kind of felt like after you go out for a long hike or a run on a hot day, or you've been working in the garden, and you come in and you drink a glass of water with great gulps. It's so refreshing. It tastes so good. We were that thirsty for relationships, and I think that's a product of the pandemic. It was good to see each other after a long winter, and there wasn't a single pause in the conversation. One person would stop to breathe, and the next person would jump in. No gaps, no hesitation. Just friends we hadn't seen in a while who could see us, people who were not our family. That was maybe a bit of a relief. There was freedom and laughter. And I thought, as, as I had walked and as I sat with these friends, this is really about worship. 
It's more than it appears. It's more than just a lovely walk. It's more than just some friends catching up. Do you know the first question of the Westminster Catechism? What is man's chief end? Or a more contemporary version would be, what is our purpose as human beings? And the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorifying God and enjoying him is a really good way to describe worship. On my walk, the beauty of those trees covered in flowers had satisfied a longing for glory and beauty within me. And then talking to my neighbors satisfied another longing, a longing to be in relationship with others. But those things are shadows of true worship, the only worship which can really completely satisfy us at the deepest level. We are created for worship, and Psalm 147 helps us to understand how worship is at the heart of human nature. It points us to at least three things. First of all, the posture of worship. Secondly, the purpose of worship. And finally, the pivot in worship. Psalm 147 is one of a group of five psalms called the Hallelujah Psalms. And they're the very last five psalms in the book of Psalms. All of them begin and end with a call to worship that gives us a posture as we approach God. In English, it says, praise the Lord. But even in the Hebrew, you might know it too. And it would be one word, hallelujah. We sang it earlier in the service. And there are two parts to that word. First, hallel, which means to boast in or to glory in something. I got to tell you, when it comes to glory, I'm in an awkward place right now. It's Saturday as we record this, and I don't know yet if I'll be basking in glory as a Leafs fan as you watch this on Sunday morning, or maybe I'll be really glad I don't have to see Justin and other Habs fans up close and personal this Sunday, because the game hasn't happened yet. Don't worry, as a Leafs fan, I'm familiar with sorrow, and I know where to find the Psalms of Lament. But seriously, why do we put so much into sports, into watching them, I mean, not playing them? Why do I get so excited or sometimes really grumpy, my family can attest to that, yelling at the TV over a hockey game? At one level, I think it's because I'm seeking glory. I want victory. I want to boast of the greatness of my team because that rubs off on me. I'll be a winner in a way if the Leafs can just make it out of the first round. I will be seen and recognized, no longer ashamed since 1967. Oh, come on, you say, it's it's just a game, isn't it? Well, then why is there so much money and time involved? Why were there so many references to the hockey gods hating the Leafs when their captain, John Tavares, went down with what looked like a terrible injury in the first period of the first game? Why did I read over and over again people saying how cursed the Leafs are? That's more than just talk. There's something spiritual to that. We try to fill our souls with many things, and sports is just one of a long list of them. Deep down in every person's heart, I believe in our souls, we are dissatisfied. We don't believe that we have worth or significance unless we're connected to something worthwhile or significant like a triumphant sports team. When Psalm 147 begins with hallelujah, it gives us a certain posture. 
What are we doing when we worship? Well, we're boasting in something. We're grounding our glory and significance. We're connecting it to something of significance. We may want to connect it to a sports team we cheer for, or we may connect it to our money, to our wealth, or to our family, to those relationships, or to the image we have of being good and decent people who come to church. But make no mistake, wherever you lodge your glory, wherever you find that significance, that is you grounding your glory in something. Everybody says, because I'm connected to this, because I've achieved this, because I've got this, now I'm important. That is Hallel, to praise, to root, to boast in something. Every soul does it. But the call to worship and it's really a command, is to hallelujah. Hallelujah, we say, praise the Lord. And Yah there is the short form of Yahweh, the personal covenant name for God that we hear for the first time when Moses was called to worship on holy ground at the burning bush. As God draws us into a covenant relationship with him, Yahweh is the name he gives to people who know his saving love. So the call to worship is nothing less than a command for you to recognize what your soul is boasting in, to see what you're dreaming about. A call to worship invites us to recognize where the fingers of your soul are, whether you're clinging to wealth or to being liked by people, pleasing them, getting their approval, or to some other kind of success or to romantic love, or, and you can add to the list, a call to worship starts to pull those fingers off. It grounds your glory, it roots your identity, your hope itself in the reality that the Lord of the universe, who knows all the stars by name, who created everything in the heavens and on the earth, also knows you and loves you and that that is your true glory. So the posture of worship is always about turning to God, being focused on God, and it draws us into his glory and away from ours. That's what worship is. That's what we're called to do. Secondly, we have the purpose of worship, and that's also laid out in the first verse of Psalm 147 for us. Why do we praise the Lord? Because it's pleasant and because it's fitting. Worship brings a spiritual harmony into your life to reverse the disorder of self-centeredness and sin. Worship fits God and it fits you. It's fitting. Now, the Hebrew word behind that English word fitting is most commonly used to describe beautiful, glorious faces. Until you find God beautiful, you're not really worshiping him. You can take Psalm 27 as an example. The psalmist writes, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So we seek God through worship, and we do that because we want his good gifts. And so you're going to try to obey him, right? And you do that so your prayers will be answered, so you'll get to go to heaven and you'll receive his blessing here and now too. 
You do all these things. You join a church, you come to worship, you serve in all kinds of ways. And the idea is you'll benefit from his salvation and healing and all those things this psalm lists that he does for us. You'll be happy, you'll have peace, and so on. But that's getting things from God. It's different from finding him beautiful. When you see God for his beauty and not for what you can get from him, you recognize that he himself is the only thing that will ultimately make you happy, whether you get any of the other things that you may want or not. That fits who God is. If he's only useful to you and he's not beautiful, that's not fitting. He's not only a great and powerful God, though he is that. He's more. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He's worthy of our worship. So what is beauty? Well, I looked it up at dictionary.com, and here's one definition. It's the quality present in a thing or person that gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind or spirit. For example, my walk to the library last Sunday was an experience of beauty, seeing those trees and their flowers and, and seeing that glorious limestone and I think we've missed out on a fair bit of that kind of beauty during this pandemic because we haven't gone places. We've been under lockdown for good parts of it. And that's what many of us enjoy doing, especially in the summer. We take time and we spend money going in search of beauty. Why would you rent a cottage on Lake Huron or buy one? Prices are crazy right now. After all, we've got two perfectly good rivers here in Guelph. They're full of water, last time I checked. But no, we are drawn to bigger water. We are drawn to endless horizons. We're, we are drawn to the vastness of the ocean or of a great lake. We want to sit down on a beach or a patio or a balcony and stare at beautiful places this summer. Why spend all that time and money to go and look at mountains or at a sunset over an expanse of water? What do you get out of it? Well, you don't get something out of it, you get it. You get the pleasure and satisfaction of seeing something so beautiful and it fills you up. Or here's another example. Let's say you have two relationships. The first one is with a work colleague. It's profitable, you're in business with this person, you're making money, but you find them kind of annoying and difficult. The second is a relationship with someone you're in love with. And good news, they're in love with you too. In the first relationship, when you meet that person, it's right down to business. What's our plan? How are we going to achieve our goals? Let's focus on results and measuring them. You don't want to see that person unless it's going to be productive. But in the second relationship, you're in love. So you don't watch the clock. You don't check to see if someone's recording action items. You probably won't ask your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, why do you want to see me anyway? You just want to be together and gaze into each other's eyes. The relationship, not the result, is what it's about. It's entirely inefficient and it's delightful for being so. And you're going to tell that person how much you love them. 
You're going to tell them they're beautiful. You're going to praise them for all sorts of things. Let them know how much you value them. Why do you do that? Well, because the praise completes the enjoyment. You're overflowing with it. Is God the lover of your soul or is he more of a business partner to you? When you're with him, are you mostly asking for things or are you praising him? If you're in it with God for the results, that is not fitting. It doesn't fit who he is. So worship aligns with the reality and beauty of God, but it also fits you. In fact, you need it more than anything. It is the ultimate fit in your life. Augustine writes in his confessions, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We are made for worship. We are created to worship, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And until we find the one true object of our worship, and it's not an it, it's a who, it's a person, until we worship God himself, through Jesus Christ, we are lost. We will never be satisfied. We will be unable to escape our own anxiety, our self-deception. We'll be bound, imprisoned by our sinful nature. And every experience of beauty along the way gives us a little taste of freedom, releases us a little bit more, makes us forget how we've been wronged and hurt and all those grievances we nurture, all that resentment. Those experiences of beauty lift us out of our momentary troubles, our preoccupations into something bigger and better for everyone. Psalm 19 tells us of the beauty of God's creation. The sun is beautiful. The sky is beautiful. The seas are beautiful. Why? because they are telling of the glory of God. They are reflecting his beauty. Everything else is like looking through a glass dimly. It's all shadows. The only way out of our restless discontent and our self-centeredness is to catch a glimpse of the beauty of God and to pursue it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it come to life, who applies it to our hearts, and it then becomes this explosive power that can blast you out of any darkness or dungeon you may find yourself in. You need it more than anything. The purpose of worship is that it shows us God's beauty and aligns us with his reality. It's fitting. So how do you go from using God to loving him? The posture of worship is praise. The purpose of worship is to behold his glory and beauty and then to reflect it. But the third thing, the pivot of worship, shows up in verses 10 and 11 of this psalm, where we read that his pleasure, God's pleasure, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a warrior, but the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. It's not that God has anything against horses or kilts. I can say that as someone from Scotland. No, what we have here is a picture of an army, an army in ancient times where horses and chariots were the technology that won wars and where the armor of soldiers left their legs exposed so they could have freedom of movement. 
You can imagine a great host marching off to battle. It's power and strength and glory. It's even beautiful in its own way. It's what people literally worshipped back then, gods of war, not just hockey gods. But the God of Israel is different. He delights in those who fear him, which doesn't mean being afraid of God. It means humility. It means acknowledging our dependence on him. He delights in those who put their hope in his unfailing love. And that's a key word, unfailing love. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. It combines ideas of faithfulness and loyalty and covenant love. It's God's kind of love. It's love that reaches out against all the odds. It's love that overcomes darkness, despair, and even death. It's a love that will not falter or fail. It's who God truly is. And we see it most of all in Jesus Christ. It's the great pivot at the heart of Christian worship. On our own, we are never going to be able to obey the call to worship, the command to worship God rightly. We are the opposite of unfailing. We fail all the time. We can't even come close to God's standard of love. We're in rebellion against it. But we always pray and worship and approach God through Christ. One of my favorite calls to worship in the Bible is in Romans 12, where Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Or another version. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. I love how that second version, that paraphrase, makes it so clear that worship is about our whole everyday ordinary lives, not just about Sunday mornings, not limited to the worship service. But you actually need the first translation, the more accurate one, because nothing is more important than that little phrase, in view of God's mercy. It's code for everything that Paul has said in the first 11 chapters of Romans about how God's unfailing love shows up once and for all in Jesus Christ at the cross. He takes all of our failures to love, our failure to worship him, and he takes even more, the judgment for all of that upon himself. He makes worship possible in view of his mercy, and he invites us to set our hopes on his unfailing love, not on our own strength. Jesus is the great center, the pivot, the heart of worship. His grace turns us from, being, from regarding God as a business partner into seeing him as the lover of our souls. So the gospel helps us to see God as beautiful, not just as useful. In fact, that's why we're serving him, not because if we serve him, then we're going to get stuff. But by his grace, we've already got it. And so now I want to serve him out of freedom because I want to be close to him. I want to be more like him. I want to please him. It changes everything. Okay, but maybe you're still wondering or worrying about whether you're captivated by God's beauty, or, or rather just praying for stuff. You have your list of things, asking him for things. Well, there's one more thing here. In verse 19, the psalmist calls 
God's chosen people by the name of Jacob. We get a lot of references in the Old Testament to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the original leaders of the Jewish people, the patriarchs we sometimes call them. But in the Psalms, God calls his people Jacob, not Abraham, and not Isaac. Why? Well, I think it's because Jacob reassures us of the process of worship. And here I'm sneaking a fourth point in. Jacob's story is remarkable. It's remarkable that he finds his place on this list of patriarchs. He started off badly. His, his name itself means schemer or liar, and he lived up to it. He was always manipulating his way through his life. He didn't trust God. He lied to his father, Isaac. He competed with his older brother, Esau, and stole from him. Probably the highlight of his whole life was wrestling with God in the middle of the night. And as he did that, he was still fighting and resisting God. But God blesses him anyway. Even after that, he goes on to rebel against God. And yet God calls us Jacob. I think that means it's a process. You're not going to break through to worshiping God in the beauty of his holiness overnight. It's going to take a whole lifetime. That's why you need to keep going back. One week in worship, it will be the music. A few weeks later, it'll be something when scripture is read or the sermon will grab you. A year later, you'll be moved by hearing someone's story of faith, a testimony. On another occasion, it'll be a passing a conversation before the service or afterwards over coffee. Yes, that time is coming again. The Psalms are full of emotion. There's lots of lament and anger and doubt, but they end decisively with these five hallelujah Psalms, of which we've looked at the one carefully this morning. In other words, they end in praise. You start with a call to worship. You need the right posture. Then you come to understand the purpose of worship. Then you pivot to the gospel and you rest in Jesus Christ. And you travel the journey of faith with others in the local church. It takes time. It is a process. But the Holy Spirit will be your guide and he will get you home. That's what it means to be called to worship. Thanks be to God for his amazing grace and his love in our lives. Amen. I want to say that if this idea of structuring worship and having a way of understanding our lives and disciplines in our life uh, is of interest to you, and, and even thinking about how that plays out among us at Courtright, what is Courtright's vision for that? Um, how are we nurturing and encouraging one another in that life of faith? Then I encourage you to come out on June 19th. When I say come out, I mean to go online. And we will be having Courtright Connect that day. It's an opportunity, if you're new to the church, to hear about our vision and our, our history. And if you've been around Courtright for a while, it's a chance uh, to get more engaged, uh, maybe to finally figure out what it means to be a Presbyterian. It's also a requirement for membership. Uh, so I hope I'll see you there, 1 p.m. on Saturday, June the 19th. I will look forward to that.